Good morning. Today we hear from the letter to the churches in Rome, instructing early Christians to follow the Roman law with an important caveat that love is the true law. Let us open our ears, our minds, our imaginations, our hearts and souls, and hear this letter as if it were written for us today. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's agents, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God among us, thanks be to God. Hello and good morning, neighbors. Uh, as introduced earlier, oh, good morning, thank you. Uh, I need to wait. Uh, as introduced earlier, I'm, I am Raul Fernandez, and uh, among many past and present roles, um, I come to you also as the chair of Brookline for Racial Justice and Equity. Um, thanks to, to Kent and to Amy for inviting me to be here with you today, and thanks for all you do as a congregation um, for queer and trans inclusion, uh, for reparations, and importantly, um, doing everything that you can for those who need it the most. Um, I come to you also as uh, the husband of Christina and the dad of Maya uh, and the stepfather of Ayana and Tyler, um, who I'm known to as Raul. Uh, and, you know, I must say mine is a, a secular family. Um, you know, for my part, that's largely because of my own family's lack of consensus on the matter. Uh, my father being, my father's mother being Catholic, his father being Jehovah's Witness, my mother's family being Protestant. Um, my, my folks were so confused that uh, as children, my parents just sent me with the neighbor uh, to church. It was actually um, an all-black church in Harlem, um, which uh, was an experience for us. I, I will say I don't remember much about that time we were young, but what I do remember is that the people were kind and never made us feel out of place. 
I feel that same sentiment here this morning, so thank you for that. Um, while I live a secular life today, I will say that there is one religious figure whose words have had tremendous impact on my own life and work, and that's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, it's his letter from a Birmingham jail that I want to revisit with you today. Uh, it's been 60 years this year since he penned that letter, uh, and it still resonates. I think it still resonates, especially here in Brookline, where, frankly, too many elected leaders talk about the need to really listen to one another, uh, but turn a deaf ear toward racism, even here in our own community. Uh, now, King is someone all of us grew up learning about. As kids, his soaring oratory and message of nonviolent resistance was drilled into us at least every February during Black History Month. The idea that we should judge someone by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, seemed particularly important for educators to instill in us. But of course, those were not the only teachings that King left behind for us. There's a different lesson from King that I want to discuss with you today. It was actually at an early age in elementary school that I was first confronted with the differing views of King and his message. It was school assembly day, MLK day. Our teacher asked us to put together a skit which included a rap that one of my friends wrote. And I still remember it, at least part of it. You wanna hear it? All right. It goes, Martin Luther King was a very good man. He wanted to do what you and I can. He fought for civil rights and equality so that all black people could be treated equally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, that's how, that's, yes. It's not credit where it's due. Um, that is, I will say, though, how he originally wrote it. The only reason that stuck in my memory, other than it being so catchy, is that I also remember our teacher, teacher telling him to make an edit. My teacher, who was white, explained to my friend, who was black, that MLK wanted all people to be treated equally, not just black people. And I remember, even as just a kid, feeling like there was something off about that. And so reluctantly, though, my friend made the edit. He did his rap at the assembly. Martin Luther King was a very good man. He wanted to do what you and I can. He fought for civil rights and equality so that all people could be treated equally. You can actually see on his face that his heart wasn't in it. He wasn't excited like he was when he first wrote it, and it just sounded off. See, he wanted to say something about the unique struggle of black people in America. And his teacher, not by mandate or coercion, but through just innate power, really marginalized that important statement. That was the first time that I was confronted with the idea that King's message landed differently for different people. That there were different readings of King based on our different positionalities and that some people's readings may lead to the oppression of others. Over time, I developed my own reading of King. And it wasn't as I have a dream or to the mountaintop speeches that spoke to me, although they're pretty good. No, it was what's sometimes called the radical King, best read through that letter from Birmingham jail, written in April 1963 as King sat in jail for participating in a protest march, which a judge just days before had made illegal. As King sat in jail, he received a copy of a newspaper which included a call for unity, a letter written by local white ministers decrying King's tactics, calling them unwise and untimely. Letter from Birmingham jail was King's response, and it was fire. The letter is probably best known for the phrase, injustice anywhere is a th threat to justice everywhere which he uses to assert his own responsibility and ours to act in the name of justice regardless of who we are or where it occurs. 
Yet some of his strongest words, but somehow most, most forgotten words, were reserved for what he called the white moderate, writing, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers the negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods or direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Throughout the letter, he repeatedly calls for more urgency and involvement in the fight for freedom and rejects the notion that all will be well in time. One more excerpt. It is the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. I am coming to feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. What we hear in this letter is a king who's frustrated by those who sit on the sidelines while others suffer injustice and worse, criticize the way they rebel against it, especially otherwise good people. I've thought about that a lot, what it means to be a good person. I was abroad once in conversation with a deeply religious person who asked how I decide what to do if I don't have a higher power to guide me. And I responded, I do what I think is right. And I thought that was a really good answer at the time. What I didn't know then is that what I think is right is so powerfully guided by my own positionality. That is the collection of identities that we hold, the experiences that we've had that shape our view of the world and the people and events around us. It's why some people view those who storm the US Capitol as traitors and others view them as patriots. Whether religious or non-religious, there is some part of all of us that believes ourselves to be good people, regardless of what we do. And in places like Brookline, long celebrated as liberal, that is where this phenomenon is exacerbated. I, a good person, was for marriage equality while others were debating civil unions. I, a good person, was a climate activist even before an inconvenient truth came out. I, a good person, have donated to worthy causes and personally helped people in need. Therefore, I, a good person, would know if there was a problem with systemic racism in my community, in our police department, in our schools, in access to housing, in our government, in the very laws that this town is governed by, and I would do something urgently to stop it. What King knew in writing his letter is that for centuries, people who believed themselves to be good passed and defended laws that created a racist hegemony that still exists today. Now, some grant dispensation to those offenders, those founding fathers, including enslavers, saying they were people of their time. But the enslavers weren't the only people of their time, were they? So too were the millions of enslaved black people. They too were of their time. They dissented, they rebelled, and those who believed themselves to be good used their power, including deadly force, in an attempt to silence them. Racism was as wrong and morally repugnant then as it is today. And thankfully, there were enough people with privilege who knew it and did something about it. But they risked much more then than it seems we are willing to do today in the name of justice. They laid their own lives on the line to help free enslaved people. 
and did so again during Jim Crow to ensure that their descendants were extended the civil rights that were due to them. But perhaps it is because of those abolitionists, because of those freedom riders, because of the Kennedy brothers that we in the North feel so superior when the question of racism arises. Why what is called segregation in the South, we more softly call racial imbalance here in the North. Perhaps it is that legacy which has given so many Brookline residents the false impression that race problems exist elsewhere, but not here, at least not really. Even as Brookline, a town whose residents benefited from the slave trade and redlining, sheds its black population. From just 3% of Brookline residents in 2010 to a mere 2.5% of residents in the most recent census. That should be an outrage, but is it? Here we are in the now seemingly distant wake of the racial reckoning after the murders of George Floyd and so many others, our work on policing taking as far, taking as, far as our elected leaders would allow it to go, yawning gaps in educational outcomes persisting for kids of color in our schools, a town budget that has lots to say about parks and roads, thankfully, but virtually nothing to say about racism and poverty, and a complete lack of urgency to do better. One final story. April of 2022 was my last full month as a select board member. It was in the final meeting of that month that the select board passed my plan for utility debt relief for Brookline residents. The plan was to use federal ARPA funding to eliminate more than $600,000 in gas and electric utility debt for more than 1,000 Brookline households. Debt that had accrued since the onset of COVID and which had hit modest income families the hardest. It was passed critically one month before the moratorium on utility shutoffs was set to end. This was a lifeline to families and the need and urgency to meet that need were made clear and the funding was there and I got the votes to do it. But here we are one, one year and three months later and the bureaucracy of our town of good people still hasn't gotten those checks.